millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History of Europe, Key Battles. The Battle of Castillon and the End of the Hundred Years' War, 1453. In the earlier two episodes, I covered the Hundred Years' War, from the Battle of Agincourt in 1415 to the Siege of Orleans in 1429 looking at it from the perspective of the English, the French and the Burgundians. The English were clearly in the ascendancy. They were outside the city walls of Orleans, France's third largest city. If they could capture the city, surely they could capture the rest of France. If you haven't yet listened to those first two episodes, now might be a good time to do so. But if you have already listened to those episodes, would like to continue anyway, then let's begin. About 25 miles southwest of the city of Nancy, on the border of France and the Holy Roman Empire, there is a village called Dom Remy. It was there, in 1412, where a girl was born who had become the symbol of French resistance to the English invasion, Joan of Arc. Sometime around the age of twelve, Joan began to hear voices, which she claimed were from various saints and then from God himself. She became convinced that she had been chosen to help deliver her kingdom of the accursed English, and asked the captain of the nearest French garrison to seek an appointment with Charles, her king. At first she was not taken seriously, but she was persistent, and eventually she persuaded the captain of her cause. In early 1429, she had an audience with Charles, who, just in case there was something in which she was saying, sent her to Poitiers to be examined by a group of churchmen. By now, Joan was claiming that God had instructed her to go to Orleans, where she would lift the siege. The king consented and allowed her to join a convoy heading to the city. 
By February 1429, the siege of Reliens had already dragged on throughout the winter, and Russians were running short for both besieged and besiegers. On the 12th of February, the English had managed to defeat a French attempt to block a supply convoy at the so-called Battle of the Herrings, and so morale was high. A month later, however, the governor of English-controlled France, John of Bedford, called with his ally Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, over the eventual control of the town. Philip angrily withdrew from the siege, taking with him the Burgundian contingent. The English army no longer had enough men to surround the besieged city. Then, on the 22nd of March, 1429, a letter was delivered to the English camp, signed by Joan of Arc. In it, she told the English she had been sent by God, and to her they must surrender the keys to all cities they had taken and violated in France. Most probably, it was not taken too seriously, because the English at this point had no idea who this young girl was. On the 29th of April, Joan arrived in Orleans with a contingent of French forces, bringing supplies that had managed to pass by the besiegers. Joan persuaded the garrison commander, John of Orleans, to allow her to accompany the French soldiers on their sallies to try and relieve the city. A few days later, on the 4th of March, a second attachment passed into the city, suggesting the English army had become too stretched to secure the whole city. Later that day, the Armagnacs made a sortie against the Bastille of Saint-Loup, an isolated church-based fortress on the eastern side of the city. Joan knew nothing of this until roused from her bed by the cries of townsmen. She immediately put on her armour, seized her standard, and rushed to rally the troops, who had been repulsed with many casualties. Her appearance helped encourage the assault. The fortress was quickly overwhelmed, and its garrison killed or captured. The next day was a holy day, Ascension Day, and fighting suspended. But the day after, the besieged made another successful sortie, this one led by the French commander, La Haya, and loudly encouraged by Joan. This time the fort of the Augustines was captured, just south of the city bridge. The victorious forces camped there overnight, and early the next morning began an assault on the English-controlled gatehouse at the south of the bridge called La Tourelles. Joan claims to have been the first to place a scaling ladder against the ramparts. An arrow struck her between the neck and shoulders, but she continued on regardless. The French commander, John of Aliens, later admitted that he was about to give the order to withdraw, when Joan begged him to continue. As the English were pushed back, a drawbridge broke beneath them, and weighed down by their heavy armour, they drowned in the Loire. Juliet Barker, in her book, Conquest the English Kingdom of France in the Hundred Years' War, writes that the loss of Tourelles, and with it control of the bridge over the Loire, was the last straw for the English. They had lost between six and eight hundred men, and their depleted forces could no longer maintain the siege. The next morning, the 8th of May, 1429, the English withdrew, and the siege of Orleans was over. Joan of Arc was no military commander, but she was an inspiration to the French troops. Her arrival at the city had coincided with the breaking of the siege, and gave credence to her message that she had been sent on a divine mission, and that God was on the side of the French. Encouraged by Joan, the supporters of Charles the Dauphin fought to take back those towns and fortifications recently captured by the English. In June 1429, an army several thousand strong laid siege to Yago, a small walled town on the river Loire, 11 miles east of Orleans. 
There the besieged Earl of Suffolk offered to surrender if the town was not relieved within fifteen days. The French refusal of the terms was considered a breach of chivalric code and the normal practices of war. This and the slaughter of prisoners that followed the assault was also against the laws of war and may perhaps be attributed to Joan. Unencumbered by the baggage of the chivalric code, she encouraged the complete destruction of the enemy. The next significant event occurred on the 18th of June, 1429. An English army, learning that Armagnac forces were in pursuit and approaching fast, decided to stand and fight near the village of Pate, 50 miles northwest of Orleans. The English failure to take Orleans by itself was a minor setback, but it entered popular mythology because of the part played in it by Joan of Arc. The relief of Orleans, largely because of the colourful story of the divinely inspired warrior maiden, would be remembered as an iconic moment in French history, while the Battle of Pate has been largely forgotten. After their crushing defeat of Pate, the English forces, already stretched, were demoralised and not strong enough to prevent Joan from completing the second part of her mission, the coronation of Charles the Dauphin at Rheims. A few months before, it would have seemed impossible that Charles would have been able to reach the city of Rheims, in the region of Champagne, in the east of modern France. But the Dauphin, normally very cautious, realised the importance to his claim to the throne, of a coronation of the city traditionally used to crown the kings of France. On the 16th of July, 1429, the Dauphin was welcomed into Rheims after the Burgundian garrison had withdrawn. The next day, he made his way to the Cathedral of Notre Dame, where he was crowned Charles VII, King of France, by the city's archbishop. He was unable to wear the traditional coronation regalia, including the crown, because they were in the hands of the English. He was, however, anointed with the holy oil, which had traditionally been used at French coronations. All of a sudden, Charles's claim as legitimate heir to the royal throne received a huge boost. The Armagnacs wrote to Philip of Burgundy, attempting to persuade him to detach himself from the English alliance. But Bedford succeeded in keeping the Duke on his side, reminding him that Charles had murdered his father. Throughout the rest of 1429, the Armagnacs regained many towns. They even besieged Paris, but were unable to take the capital and had to withdraw. That November, in response to Charles's coronation, the English crowned the eight-year-old son of Henry V as King Henry VI of England. Also, new taxes were collected for a renewed offensive in France. The aims were twofold, firstly to try and retake lands lost since the relief of Orleans, including Orem, and secondly to crown Henry VI in Paris, and so help bind the French subjects closely to the English regime. The new campaign would represent the heaviest commitment to France since the invasion of 1417. Every effort was made to involve Philip of Burgundy in the coronation at Paris. The presence of the Duke would be an important rallying call to any subjects whose loyalty had wavered after the coronation of Charles VII. Bedford realised the importance of fostering good relations with Burgundy. To help in this cause, he decided to cede to the Duke England's claims to Champagne, a county which had recently been overrun by forces loyal to the Dauphin. Philip now had more of an incentive to fight for the area against the Armagnacs. As part of this field of conflict, Philip's forces besieged the town of Compiègne, but its people 
pinning their loyalty on Charles, refused to hand over control, and so were put under siege. The main significance of the siege is the presence of Joan of Arc, who slipped into the town with a small troop of a hundred men. However, unlike in Orleans, she had acted purely on her own initiative, without the blessing of Charles. On the 23rd of May, 1430, towards evening, Joan decided to make a sortie from the town. Initially, she was successful and drove the Burgundians back to the camp, but then straying too far from safety, she was intercepted, surrounded by the enemy, and taken prisoner. The English, having brought Joan from her Burgundian captives, put her on trial as a heretic. In an inquisition, which lasted from January to May 1431, Joan was quizzed in detail on the nature of her visions and her beliefs. In fear of execution, Joan recanted, but soon after summoned the courage to reaffirm her beliefs, and on the 30th of May 1431 she was executed by being burnt alive. The trial was, of course, politically motivated, a device to discredit Charles VII as a heretic by association, and so undermine his claims to the crown. One thing which should be borne in mind is that the trial was conducted mostly by Frenchmen. Joan was a victim, at least as much of a French civil war, than that of a war with the English. Charles VII made no real effort to save Joan. It is often said because she had outlived her usefulness, and because she was getting the credit for victories which Charles and his courtiers believed should be theirs. In the 1450s, two decades later, in order to purge his association with a convicted heretic, Charles set up a posthumous retrial, and on the 7th of July, 1456, she was pronounced innocent of all charges and declared a martyr. With Joan out of the way, the English were keen to reinforce Henry VI's claim to the French throne over those of Charles. So in November 1431, an English army landed in France, to accompany their king to his coronation as the King of France. As a nine-year-old boy, Henry passed through each town on his way to Paris, he was met with extravagant pageantry designed to impress the citizens. Then on the 16th of December, 1431, ten days after his tenth birthday, Charles VI achieved the ambition for which his father, Henry V, had fought and died. He was crowned and consecrated King of France. But somehow, it was not the moment of triumph it should have been. The first choice location, Rem was in the hands of the Armagnacs, so Paris had to make do. Also, there was a distinct absence of French nobles, most notably the Duke of Burgundy, who had decided not to attend. Henry VI stayed only three weeks in Paris, and after an equally brief stay in Rouen, was whisked back to England. His coronation had been a natural and expected reaction to that of Charles VII's claim to the French crown. The problem was that it committed the English more fully to what was now Henry's divinely sanctioned right to the French throne. An uncrowned king might, at some future date, have been able to renounce his claim in order to secure peace on advantageous terms, perhaps the retention of Normandy and other lands. But now the possibility of a diplomatic rather than a military situation to the conflict, was further away than ever. Philip of Burgundy's failure to make an appearance at Henry's coronation shows the Duke's lack of full commitment to the English cause. When trying to understand his decisions, it must be remembered that they were based, as is natural, in what he thought was best for his duchy and his family. 
To achieve this, he took a very different strategy than his father. While John the Fearless had been active in French politics and had made great efforts to control Paris, Philip, in contrast, hardly ever visited France. His main focus was expanding his family's interests in the areas of the Low Countries and absorbing them into his state of Burgundy. To do so, he kept his options open and played his cards close to his chest. So to deter the French from making a full-scale invasion, he held out the possibility of an alliance to the French. He did likewise for the English, without ever fully committing himself. Some would call this duplicitous, others just pragmatic. Also bear in mind that there must have been several individuals in his court who were more inclined towards the French than to the English, and he needed them on his side. As a sign of the growing international prestige of his duchy, in 1430, Philip of Burgundy married Isabella, daughter of the King of Portugal, after the death of his previous wife. The choice marked a distinct break with Philip's previous marital policy, for his first two wives had close ties with France. A further demonstration of the duchy's independence was the founding, at this time, of a new order of chivalry, the Order of the Golden Fleece. A Burgundian version of England's Order of the Garter, this new order was created by Philip in celebration of his marriage to Isabella, and as a way to reward his most loyal knights. From 1430 to 1435, the French made a number of scattered but uncoordinated attacks into Burgundian lands, punctuated by local and short-lived truces. Charles realised his forces were not strong enough or united enough to defeat Burgundy by themselves, so he sent diplomats to the local leaders such as the Dukes of Austria and Bavaria and the towns of Strasbourg, Bern and Basel, inviting them to join a French alliance against Philip. Although no serious threat to Burgundy resulted, Philip always had the worry of invasion from all sides. Philip of Burgundy had always been an enemy of the German king Sigismund because of their many competing claims for authority, such as in the Low Countries and Lorraine. Sigismund's military involvement against the heretical Hussites of Bohemia in the 1420s had forced him to remain a passive, if indignant observer of Philip's seizure of some of the wealthiest imperial territories of the West. In 1431, Philip considered heading a crusade against the Hussites, which would have greatly improved his relation with Sigismund, but he was too occupied elsewhere. By 1434, Sigismund was crowned as Holy Roman Emperor, and with the Hussite question largely resolved could divert his aggression from Bohemia to Burgundy. Sigismund declared war on Philip, and made an alliance with Charles, but was never able to organise a major military campaign against Burgundy by the time he died in 1437. This episode shows how Philip had other serious concerns, as well as those relating to France and England, which help explain his actions. Meanwhile in France, throughout the early 1430s, the English needed to put down numerous conspiracies against their rule in France. One of the most successful was an attempt by sympathisers to the Armagnacs to seize control of Rouen, the capital of Normandy, just a few weeks after the coronation of Henry VI. It was vital for the English to provide a sense of security and prosperity to territory they controlled, a task made harder by a series of exceptionally harsh winters. Bedford did what he could to prevent Armagnac raids, which disrupted trade and destroyed the countryside, but the general population continued to suffer great hardships. Pope Eugenius IV made great efforts to broker an end to the conflict, and in 1432 sent an envoy to mediate a settlement, 
but it soon became clear that nothing could be agreed. There was practically no chance of reconciliation between the English and French, while each claimed the rights of sovereignty over France. As for Philip of Burgundy, what he wanted from the Armagnacs, apart from an apology and compensation for the murder of his father, was cession to him of the county of Champagne. Possession of this region in northwest France would help him join the Low Countries in the north to the Duchy of Burgundy in the south. Agreements were made, more difficult by the internal disputes within both France and England. The Duke of Bedford and his brother, the Duke of Gloucester, clashed constantly over strategy and how to finance the campaign. At the same time, the Armagnacs were divided between supporters of Arthur de Richemont and Georges de la Tremelay. Chamelet procured the banishment of his bitter personal rival from the French court and became the court favourite. But in June 1433, Chamelet himself was charged with financial irregularities, removed from office and sent into exile. Philip took this as an opportunity for a renewed offensive against the Armagnacs and made minor gains. In early 1434, also the English forces enjoyed some successes against the French, but there were no decisive encounters. A kind of stalemate seems to have been reached. In January 1435, Philip of Burgundy agreed to meet with the French nobles, Arthur de Richemont and the Duke of Bourbon to discuss conditions for a possible peace settlement. The presence of the Archbishop of Rheims, a leading noble in the French court, hinted that this might be more than a simple renewing of truces. The parties all agreed to meet again to discuss a general peace on the 1st of July at the town of Arras in the Burgundian Low Countries. This time the English were invited as well with the declared intention of finding an overall peace. Juliet Barker portrays the conference at Arras of 1435 as essentially a stitch-up for the English. They were the last to receive their formal invitations, and since Charles VII and the Pope had already accepted and appointed delegates, it would have been difficult to decline. Once they arrived, the terms offered were impossible. Most of all, the renunciation of the French crown in return for keeping the Duchy of Normandy and the marriage with a French princess. The English were effectively being required to give up everything they had fought for since 1415 in exchange for dukedom, which would be held subject to Charles VII. The conference had been carefully stage-managed by the French and Burgundians to make the English look unreasonable and give Philip the excuse he wanted to break with them. So on the 21st of September 1435, the Treaty of Arras was signed between Burgundy and France, leaving the English out in the cold. The Treaty of Troyes of 1420, by which Henry V had inherited the French crown, was effectively overturned, marking a significant turning point in the Hundred Years' War, and the beginning of the end of the English Kingdom of France. For the English, the conference had been a disaster. As for Philip of Burgundy, initially it looked like a triumph. He had skilfully extricated himself from the English alliance with honour. Time would tell, however, that Philip had been duped by the French. Seduced by the cession of some minor border territories, by considerable personal bribes and by the skilful tactics of the French negotiators, the Duke and his entourage had been persuaded to abandon their former ally in exchange for terms of peace which Charles VII never intended to honour. Philip believed he had emerged from the conference as a grand figure on the world stage. But as Judith Barker writes, what he did not know was that, quote, he was merely a puppet whose strings had been pulled by the Armagnacs, end quote. 
At the same time, the English suffered a second setback. John, the Duke of Bedford, had been too ill to attend the conference. Had he been present, he might have possibly been able to persuade his friend, the Duke of Burgundy, to change his mind. As it was, he passed away on the 14th of September, aged 46, knowing that Philip had deserted him. Bedford's military leadership and skilful diplomacy had given the English Kingdom of France a real chance of survival, but his death, combined with the defection of Burgundy, were blows from which the English would never recover. The French immediately seized the initiative by launching a new offensive into English-held territories. The strategy of the campaign that followed was twofold. Firstly, to capture the coastal towns, which in the hands of the English had allowed them to control the channel and help ship men, weapons and provisions into France. Already in October, the port of Dieppe fell to a French coup. Secondly, French troops suddenly advanced toward Paris and cut off the English supply lines to the city. Although Paris was the capital and administrative centre of the English Kingdom of France, few native Englishmen had taken up residence there. Particularly once Burgundy was no longer allied to England, the Parisians, who up until then had cooperated with the English, felt little reason to continue to do so. The situation looked particularly insecure for the English once the town of Pontoise, 20 miles northwest of Paris, was captured by the French. An English army of 800 men arrived in Paris in the spring of 1436, led by Sir Thomas Beaufort. They prepared for siege, seizing all available foodstuffs and burning the villages on the Seine, between Paris and Pontoise. Such actions only managed to turn the locals against the regime, who now rose in revolt against the English. Outnumbered, the English fled without taking a stand and took refuge in the Bastille. Arthur de Richemont led the French troops into the capital without a fight. With no desire for a siege to the Bastille, he agreed to let the English leave the city in exchange for a huge ransom. The loss of Paris effectively put an end to the English Kingdom of France. The English did not drop their claims to the crown, but by necessity transferred the offices of state to Rouen, capital of Normandy. The French were clearly in the ascendancy, and the English diplomatically isolated. The question for the English was no longer whether they would be able to hold the French throne, rather how much of the continental territory, if any, they would be able to keep hold of. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving it a review on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. You can find the podcast online on Facebook or at the blog www.historyeurope.net. You can also find me on Twitter at HistoryEuropeKB. I hope you can join me next week for the concluding part of the Battle of Castillon 1453 and the end of the Hundred Years' War.